This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, and welcome to In Focus Sport from Control Risks Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Alicia Fitterman, an Associate Director in the Compliance, Forensics and Intelligence team here at Control Risks. In each In Focus Sport episode, my colleague, John Brown, the head of the forensics practice across Europe, Middle East and Africa, will sit down with a guest to discuss their views and insights on a range of current themes linked to the integrity of sports. In this episode, John sits down with Niels Lindholm, the first ethical compliance officer to join World Athletics, formerly the International Association of Athletics Federations. They discuss the wide-ranging reforms which were put in place at World Athletics to combat corruption risk at the organization, following a well-publicized scandal that emerged earlier in the decade. Niels provides us with insight into World Athletics' journey and discusses how compliance professionals and governance and integrity programs can work together to build trust in a global sports organization. Hi, Niels. Firstly, thanks for joining us today for the Control Risks podcast, where we're going to be discussing integrity and compliance in sport. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Niels, you're anti-corruption and compliance specialist. Prior to your current role with World Athletics, you spent 10 years at Control Risks in Latin America, and then in London, where you headed up one of our regional teams. In February 2018, you were appointed by World Athletics to become their first ethical compliance officer, so tasked with implementing the ethical compliance program. And I should say, in the unlikely event that any of our listeners don't know, um, World Athletics is the governing body for athletics globally, so formerly known as the IAAF. Niels, can you tell us what you thought you were getting into when you took up this role? Well, to start with, you want to be looking at the history of sports and it's linked to ethics and integrity. For example, did you know that the first record of a gift policy at the Olympic Games dates from 24 centuries ago? Judges would take an oath, pledge to do no evil, and commit to accepting no gifts as part of their role in competitions. And that's probably one of the oldest forms of compliance policies out there across all industries. So you can see that sport is tied with ethics and compliance since the very, very early days. And because of that, my immediate thought was, well, I'm about to get my head around an issue that is very, very old and has been an ongoing concern since then. So that's a short insight into the history of compliance in sport. So what about athletics in particular? You can look at athletics as a type of universal public good. It's a unique public good because it makes people more active and healthier. Now, the thing is, when you start planning the corruption risk assessment, thinking about your risk map, you got to remember that before being a sport, athletics is a anthropological fact. Running, jumping, throwing things is what humankind does since the dawn of time. It's universally available, and our organization represents 214 members and territories. So our risk map is going to look like the whole world, basically. And what about working for a sports governing body? Are there some specific characteristics about that? Yeah, well, World Athletics as a governing body is the association of all its members. These are the stakeholders who decide what happens in terms of rules and and values. It's therefore an entity that, due to the nature of public delegation in the sector, to some extent self-regulates. Now, this aspect of self-regulation is very important because you don't have a defined regulatory framework you can take from your regulator and off you go, this is your roadmap. Instead, in an international sports body, we're going to be representing the will of our members. And without a strong mandate from the membership, 
we would not have the impetus to launch the wide-ranging reforms, which are at place since 2016. In a way, World Athletics, through the prism of sports, has unique characteristics because it, it represents a share of humankind and what it wants on a global basis. And this has a meaning when you're planning your compliance activities, when you're thinking, for example, about how you're going to calibrate your training content for a global audience. And would it be fair to say you're aware, as many of us are, of the corruption scandal that had affected the IAAF back in 2013 and 14? So that had a, a significant impact on reputation. Were you aware of that before you joined the organization? Well, yes, John, I was aware of it. But I was also obviously aware that sport in general is a sector prone to high risk of corruption. Look, a international sports federation is going to be doing a number of things such as staging events. But at its core, it's going to be producing and enforcing rules. It's going to oversee doping controls, negotiate marketing and sponsorship rights and award bids to host events. If you apply that to the academic studies around corruption, you're going to find yourself in a market where on one side you've got stakeholders in demand of buying preferential treatment. And on the other side, some officials who might want to monetize their influence for personal benefit. Now, the magnitude of the issue that happened here was fueled by the lack of strong governance and the level of cash involved in these decisions at the time. Now, the mechanics of what happened, that's pretty consistent with the corruption schemes that you observe in other self-regulating bodies. What is quite unique is, and we're not the only one, is how this scandal triggered a powerful reform to ensure this never happens again. And did you feel there were any limitations or any constraints that were placed on you when you started this role? No, and, and you need to remember that a lot had happened before I joined. Rules had been drafted, the Athletics Integrity Unit was set up, funded and operational. And the membership had voted a package of reforms that were embedded in the revised constitutions of 2017-2019. So, a tremendous amount of work had already gone into the ethical reform of the organization and, and the role of the ethical compliance officer, in fact, is a, a product of that work. Now, the only metric I was given during the recruitment process was about uh, the pace of the reform launched in, in the wake of this crisis, because we had to go fast and we could take no break. And I remember they told me the job was like changing the tires of an F1 car while the car was still racing at full speed. <laughs> That's a nice analogy. So a lot of moving parts to consider. What did success look like for you? Well, John, I, I had to be prudent because, as you know, some of the tools available to compliance are powerful and can wreck the place if not handled with care. The, the path to success was to create a shared vision based on the values found in our constitution. This vision had to complement the work that had already been done and make sure that everyone could buy into it. It's always difficult to measure key performance indicators for compliance. So did you set any KPIs for your role? Well, the goal was to create a program that would help deliver one single output to support the reform process. That was a significant increase in trust across our organization and in our sports. Because you see, trust is a rare, volatile commodity. It's probably the most valuable output a compliance program can deliver and look after. Because if you don't focus on delivering more trust, then your compliance program can become something like a self-flaking ice cream, which is something that's just here to justify its own existence. So helping to increase trust in athletics was the, the paramount objective for the program. And of course, in line with the wider objective of the reform. How do you go about increasing trust through a compliance program? Well, you know, there are many aspects and we won't cover them all here, John. But if you look at the fundamentals, 
I could give you three, which seem to work well in our context. First, you want your compliance program to be grounded in clear values and, and have a sense of purpose. Because to commit to culture change, it doesn't need to be super complicated. You got to pick one or two values and stick with them. You can pick truth, for example, because when you unpack truth, you can find things like honesty, transparency, and accountability. These are powerful values that everybody can understand. Second, you've got to be inclusive. Compliance is not a giant game of walk a mole. In a sports federation, you don't tell officials for member federations what to do. They are your constituents. But you can advise, you can guide, sometimes you can push. But the process for getting there is not vertical. The conversation has to be positive and about making people feel included and safe. You want to be enabling them to see and buy into the bigger picture. Finally, you want to build in clear benefits for those who do the right thing. And that is because there is a cost in doing the right thing. So how do you reward this effort? I never felt that you should take compliance for granted. How do you make it sustainable over time? To justify its existence beyond a mere response to a crisis or regulatory requirements, compliance has to deliver clear benefits to its users. Yeah, I, I, mean, I feel there's got to be more to it, though, than that. So, I mean, you personally, tell us about your personal style. At a personal level, I believe that compliance has to be simple and personable, and it has to work everywhere in the world. Of course, you can introduce some technology, not for the sake of having a gadget, but to build scale, ease of access and traceability. But you can't outsource integrity to some algorithm. I wonder if taking a computer's says no approach to compliance gets you anywhere in the long run. That's because I believe that the key is through people. So what I do is that I spend a considerable amount of time speaking with people. And the more concerned I am, the more I'm going to try to get them to talk to me, asking what they are going to do next, if they have considered the best interest of world athletics, etc. Because at the end of the day, a business is made of people. So compliance, for me, is all about making people comply because they find it's in their best interest and that they can be proud of the ethical values that underpin their efforts. And how do, you, how do you go about linking compliance and leadership? Well, clearly, you've got the tone and time from the top, and that's a key pillar of any compliance program. But how do you secure this in the long run? It's essential that the program delivers better decisions so that leadership can also own it as something that adds value to the business. Look, the first time I met our CEO, our new CEO, he asked how I would describe my job. I told him compliance was like brushing his teeth. He didn't need to obsess about it, but he had to do it every day if he wanted to see the results. That's what I told him. Because you can't brush your teeth for eight hours straight on on 1st January, then no more, and then wonder why you don't have white teeth by the end of the year. Compliance is the same. More than anything, compliance is a healthy habit that, that needs to live inside decision-making, not around it. If you look at the crisis the IAAF went through, Historically, to the outside world, it, it feels like a lot of damage had been done to the level of trust that people could place in the former leadership of world athletics. How did you go about recovering from that? Well, you, you need to look at the work done by the new leadership around the reforms and the work done by the Athletics Integrity Unit around clean sport and sports results. Remember that the membership voted for the reforms. These were their reforms. Now, as far as compliance is concerned, there were two things that we absolutely had to get right. First, deliver the vetting program. And second, deliver trusted and compliant Congress elections. Now for the vetting program, 
we had to ensure that all senior officials are able to adhere to the level of integrity that we demand. And for this, we established an independent vetting panel. These are experts with no vested interest whatsoever in athletics. They decide based on what is best for world athletics, integrity, reputation, and compliance with its rules. By 2018, all council, commissions, and committees had been vetted. One council member was removed on vetting grounds. He appealed, and we won at the Court of Arbitration of Sports. By the end of 2018, we had vetted 150 senior officials. In 2019, this number was 174. And in 2020, we're going to add another 130 more. This means that by the end of this year, the entire population of officials, from council members down to international technical judges you see officiating on the track and field, have been reviewed and vetted independently. And what about the elections? Well, exactly. that We had to deliver indisputably trusted and compliant Congress elections. Congress elections are our main election of the sports leadership and decision-making bodies, and they happen every four years. That was the main project for 2019. For the first time, all candidates, including candidates to area present positions, were vetted by this independent vetting panel. Now, this is not your vanilla check. This is a proper review of an individual's reputation, track record, and standing under our rules. And actually, several candidates dropped out on, on that basis. Now, to set up the process towards the 2019 elections, we established a dedicated set of rules and procedures, and, and we also established an independent election oversight panel. We set campaign budget limits, we monitored their campaign expenses, we spoke to all candidates individually about our conduct expectations, we wrote FAQs, and ultimately we engaged disciplinary measures when required. Actually, I was pleased to see that this effort was, was picked up in the 2020 governance report by ASWAF, the Association of Summer Olympics International Federations. ASWAF noted these work streams, alongside the work around bidding of events, as being exemplary. And if we step back just a little bit and think about how, how you go about securing buy-in for this program, how you counter pushback, what was your experience in dealing with this? I think you need to invest a lot of time to explain to people why we're doing this. You want to explain the reasoning, you want to explain the benefits, you want to make it like something that people will want to do every day, like brushing their teeth. Bear in mind that many people will naturally do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. Once you've explained the methodology, I think what is key is to make it predictable. People must know exactly what is going to happen and what the benefits or risks are from the onset. There can be no surprises. Now, in terms of dealing with pushback, if you look at the program, it looks a bit like a global smoking ban. When you're launching a global smoking ban, you're mostly going to take pushback from the smokers. But in fact, most of the non-smokers will be easily on board. And often a compliance program, it will look to deliver strong results around cases of non-compliance. So did you factor that into your approach? There was no targeting because that would be wrong. But indeed, the logical step to what I just said is that we had to identify very early on clear cases of non-compliance. And we had to deliver strong results in the form of the removal of senior, well-known officials who had been widely known and had escaped accountability so far. Uh, there was indeed a, a benefit in sending a clear message that the program would deal with accountability. You need to show people why it's worth complying. And that also means proving to them that it's not worth not complying. Because you don't force trust on people, but after you show it many times and consistently, people can start to believe in it. You said earlier on that you wanted the program to be personable. Why, why is that so important? 
It's important, John, because you want to boil it down to simple, clear, relevant advice. Look, I'm not a lawyer. I'll tell you, I struggle having to read all these rules all the time. And I don't expect people to come in at World Athletics, remember all the rules and keep on reading them until they're memorized. No, people, they come in, they look at what the others do, and then they'll either mirror or at least they'll adapt to what they see in practice. Compliance advice that we issue, we need to make it easy to remember if you want to drive change. So I wrote a number of FAQ documents that we've circulated, and these documents have short definitions for each set of rules. It's about being as practical as possible. I'll give you a couple of examples. The summary to our gift policy is that if it's really nice, then it's wrong. And the summary of our disclosure policy is that if you're hoping no one will find out, then there's something wrong with your plan. These are simple to remember and they help keep the program alive in people's mind because these explanations are just catchy. And I'm sure as you're making progress against the objectives that you'd set yourself, that there were hurdles that that cropped up along the way. So how did you get over some of the biggest hurdles? These things don't happen in isolation. In fact, the whole sector contributes to a better world. I share an office with an outstanding lead counsel in sports governance. And although my role is independence, I can always count on the support of our executive team. And we benefit from having external experts on the vetting panel, the election oversight panel, and these experts were very generous with their advice and the trust they gave to my mandate. And what about external stakeholders? Yes, it was very useful to share experience early on with stakeholders in the sector. We formed a small club with the other few compliance officers working in other sports federations. That's because we're absolutely on the same team when it comes to promoting integrity and fighting corruption. We also established a relationship with the French Anti-Corruption Agency. We just simply wrote to them asking for their guidance. And they did a great job mapping out the milestones on the road to compliance with their own regulation. All of this out of goodwill. And another factor to overcome these hurdles, and and by the way, what a great choice of of word, John. (laughs) Um, Another factor was the strength of the desire from the, the vast majority of officials and staff involved to actually see a change for better practices. So although in my role, I'm by definition quite isolated, I always felt that the initiatives I was working on or towards are supported by the majority of the constituency. What does the future look like for World Athletics? We want to be the best example of a well-governed sports federation. We're working on a e-learning program for ethical compliance so we can reach officials and athletes everywhere. And following the elections last year, we're thinking about best practice guidelines in federations elections. This is what I'm most passionate about. Because at the end of the day, when you think of ethics, it's down to giving opportunity to people and having the safeguarding mechanisms in place in order to protect them and encourage them to always do the right thing. It's got to be a grassroots approach if you want real demonstrable change to happen. So looking at it all, I can tell you this, John. I'm very excited to think that we can all contribute to making ethical conduct a real competitive advantage. Fantastic. Thanks, Niels. Really fascinating to hear your thoughts about ethical compliance. That's all that we have time for today, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, John. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, 
our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.